Hey everyone, welcome to That Triathlon Life Podcast. I'm Eric Lagerstrom. I'm Paula Finley. I'm Nick Goldston. And we are coming to you from Ventura, California for the, is this our third week in a row, I think? Uh, we're on training camp. Paul and I are both professional triathletes. If you have not checked out our YouTube before, we have got some really cool running and riding segments uh, here in Ventura. I'm sure you've seen a lot of Mount Lemon and Boulder and Bend, Oregon, but <laughs> right. this is something a little bit different. We're having a blast down here and we're actually only an hour away from Nick, who is the third leg of our tripod on this podcast, amateur pr- triathlete, professional musician, and uh, the reason this podcast sounds great. I don't love when you guys say that when we're not at our normal setup because there's weird things that pop up when we're not, you know, when you guys aren't with the mic setup that we designed for that room at home and I'm here. But I, tr- I try to do a good job with uh, with these like little mobile mics that you guys are using. Yeah, we're we're using our on the road podcast from the van or whatever Airbnb we are at set up. Uh, but I think it works out pretty well. And what matters is that we're all here together. That's right. Well, unfortunately, we're not all in the same room. But next week we'll be in the same room together. So I'm gonna switch topics really quickly. This weekend in Ventura, there's the Ventura Marathon. People from LA kind of target it as a race, and I have a bunch of friends that are racing it. What would it take? for the two of you to do an all-out marathon effort if at the end, magically, you didn't have any fatigue or injuries or anything from it. It was just the pain of the effort to do it. What would it take? What's the, There's no downside. That it's uncomfortable? We're, we're curious what the downside is other than it would be very uncomfortable. What's the downside of doing a 20-minute all-out FTP test? I think the downside of an FTP test is that you might let yourself down, and what does that mean for your future? Rather than, of course, it's hard. Like It's our job to do hard things, You know, as cliche as that might sound. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be kind of fun to, to experience it. I, I don't think that... I think that with the invention of super shoes, it would be doable because my, my worry would be like muscular breakdown within the marathon, which oh, probably yeah. would still happen. But when you have super shoes and carbon and the extra bounce, that really, it super saves your legs, especially in a full marathon because I can feel it in a half that it saves my legs. I, after all these years, I thought I knew you guys. I thought both of you would be like, there's no amount of money. There's no magic genie that could give me anything to go all out on a marathon. And look at this. You don't well, even need anything. You're not going all out, Nick. A marathon is like very paced. Well, sure. Okay. It is very paced, but the last hour is going to hurt no matter what. Do you think you know Kipchoge is not at his wit's end for the last hour? Maybe maybe he's not. I don't know. They're, they're built a little different, but I'm just surprised. I got to imagine the last hour is kind of like the last hour of a 70.3 that you're really, really pushing. It's, yeah. you know, you're still running on very tired legs. You really want to stop. It's not a, a super exciting speed or whatever, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, that, yeah. That being said, I'm not really, in, I'm not really interested personally, but it wouldn't take an insane amount of money or incentives to get me to try it just because it is a new, interesting, different thing versus I know exactly what a 70.3 feels like. 20 miles, 30 miles, 40 miles into the bike and et cetera on the run. And a marathon is I'm like, okay, well, you're kind of just jumping into something a little slightly different. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm really surprised to hear that. That's that, that went a different direction. That's really interesting though. Um, okay. Next thing here, I wanted to do a follow-up on something we talked about last week, which was, we talked about what do you do with your old kits? And a, a, a few people messaged me and told me that most cities have, and, and I confirm this, have some kind of textile donation service or multiple different uh, 
entities oh, awesome. that do this. So you just need to Google whatever is your closest city, or even you could try your if you're a bigger town, just Google, you know, whatever it is, Philadelphia textile donation and check out the first few links. And there's a probability that you can bring your stuff there. And they may ask you to, you know, cut out any stains or anything like that, but I thought that was worth mentioning for people who are trying to be a little more conscious. They just recycle the fabric. They're not they trying recycle to the fabric. Like yes. Reuse the That's things. super cool. Yeah, yeah, they won't they don't reuse it in that sense. Like no one else is going to be using your cycling kit. But your cycling kit may be part of a new kitchen sink or something. I don't know, you know, whatever <laughs> whatever it becomes. Yeah, that's cool. Reincarnated. Do you think yeah. they'd even take like um lycra? Well, I Googled Lycra. I Googled Lycra textile donation, and I didn't find anything that said it was not donatable. I saw many okay. things that said it was easily recyclable. So, But I think every entity, for example, in, in, in Italy, you separate your recycling into different ways than you separate it in Los Angeles. And there's some places will accept your compost, some cities won't. So I think it's going to depend on whatever this company does, whatever their workflow is with this stuff. And they'll have yeah. the guidelines on their website. Yeah. There's a really cool website that I found called gotsneakers.com. And you can, they'll if you sign up, they'll send you like this giant bag that you can fill with your old shoes and they will actually give you money for those shoes. And depending on what condition they're in, it's like $2 for bad condition shoes, $7 for wow. good condition shoes. So I filled up two huge bags. They send you a prepaid shipping FedEx label. And like a month later, they tell you how much you made and they send you a check. And it's like $12 or whatever. Yeah, but <laughs> tree fitting. It's a great way That's to get rid of and shoes. banana and bread. They're reusing them into... Into new shoes. Yeah, and, and it's not going into a landfill, presumably, right? Yeah, that's the best part. Yeah. What do you think they do with them? I think I've seen tracks that are made out of recycled shoes. Free sneaker recycling programs. Uh, anyway, yeah, they take the parts and move, turn them into something else, I guess. Cool, that's interesting. Well, I have a bunch of sneakers that could find a home, so maybe that's good. Also, Eric and I yesterday drove down from, well, Eric drove down from Ventura to Santa Monica, and then I drove us down to San Diego. So that was like a three and a half, no, four hour one-way trip for you, Eric, which is brutal. Yeah. Broken well, up, though. I mean, it didn't, it didn't seem that bad to me, because I jumped in the van after doing a hard bike workout, and I really like driving the van, as long as it's not dark and wet <laughs> out. Uh, and then I just sat in the Tesla, and we freaking cruised along while paying all the attention to the road. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, on the on the beautiful freeways down here. And, and it was all because we were going to see a concert. So the drive was well worth it. We got to see Nick and my shared favorite artist right now, Petey. And it was, it was actually a pretty cool trip for me too, just because like I've spent so much time down in San Diego training over the years. It was a little bit of like memory lane mixed with this really cool concert we got to go see. Also, I, I leave you for one second, and there is a TTL fan there talking your ear off when I got back. That was super cool. Just a, a random guy who lives in Oceanside and likes our videos, has watched Oceanside before, and um, that was pretty cool to connect with somebody at, at that concert specifically. Okay, speaking of Oceanside, you guys, um, we have a listener whose father-in-law owns a hotel in Oceanside, and... He is being so generous to offer a discount for any TTL fan that wants to stay at this hotel. It's called Oceanside Marina Suites. 
and it is literally right beside the start of the race. Oh, so an extremely sweet. convenient location, Ooh. really close to the beach. Um, yeah, you can't get a better spot. So like if, the number of questions that we get about where should I stay in Oceanside is yes, actually <laughs> right. insane because it does. It's a two transition area. It's like not, not always cheap. There's a lot of it's different. It's a pretty options. expensive place to stay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's logistically like there's two transitions, so it's a bit tricky. But um, if you guys are interested, no pressure. Staying at Oceanside Marina Suites, you can call in for a 15% discount. Uh, the code is TTL Oceanside. And so wait, um, there's not, you don't do this yeah. online. You actually have to call them and, and tell them like, hey, they said I have you have a- to call. Yeah, that he said you have to. He call. was pretty old school. He was a bit old. School. <laughs> Maybe you could try try it with the promo code on the website and see if that works. But, okay. Um, yeah, otherwise just call and they 100% will know what you're talking about. Especially when all the hotel rooms are like hundreds of dollars, you could save yeah. 60, uh, yeah. 90 bucks. You know? That's a, uh, that, is, that is some serious value. You're welcome, everybody. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, <laughs> oh my God, that's right. Okay, well, we have a bunch of great questions uh, this week uh, about triathlon, of course, but I'm going to start with some uh, a segment here that we like to do called Rapid Fire. Okay, so sometimes we like to come up with user-submitted rapid fires, but this one I came up with, and I'm sometimes I'm just curious too. So first one here, favorite sunscreen to train in? Uh, Sunbum for me. About Zelios. We had a monster uh, Zelios super pump. I like Zelios too. I like Zelios too. I like the smell of Sunbum better though. Yeah, oh, that is true now that you mention it. Eric and I drove by maybe Sunbum headquarters in Encinitas. We yesterday. did. Yeah. We were driving through Solana Beach and I was like, and that's where Paula and I would get coffee. And that's Sunbum. It's right next to where we get coffee. And we would talk about getting <laughs> sponsored by Sunbum. And that's, yep. <laughs> this is the pizza place where Paulo and I went when I, in 2012. Okay. Next rapid fire. Would you rather get a leg massage or a shoulder massage? Right now, a shoulder massage sounds great. I'm kind of carrying some tension. Mm-hmm. I'm desperate mm-hmm. for a leg massage. We don't have a yeah. massage therapist here in Ventura. If anyone knows anyone who is a massage therapist in Ventura, we'd love a contact. <laughs> but our wonderful massage therapist, Scott, is back in Bend. And that is like seriously the number one downside of not being in Bend right now. Yeah. Missing Scott. Oh, sorry, Scott. Next one here. What do you think the most effective swim drill for you personally is? We do this one called wide catch up, where you're doing catch up drill, but you're not touching your hand to your other hand. You're staying with a wide stroke just to encourage like a wider entry because a lot of people will cross over and they don't even know it. So so wider than you would encourage- swim, not just wide compared to catch up, but wide even compared to like proper swimming. Yeah, wide. Like think about going wide and you'll probably actually be right. at a pretty good spot. <laughs> what about you, Eric? Uh, my favorite thing to do is 25 kick, 50 swim four times through. Just continuous. And, and like trying to be kind of... Being like rigid on top of the water and just like getting my legs activated and everything, and then trying to swim on top of the water like really well. I don't know. It's, pro- it's probably hard to describe, but it's like a, just a very feel based thing. Yeah, cool. My least favorite thing to do is polo, head up, swimming. I feel like it just ruins everything about my stroke. When we did that the other day in Ventura, uh, I just I, I hated it, but I was like, oh, Paula said polo, so we're doing it, water polo, so we're doing it. Is the point? What is the point of that? Well, head up, head up is so applicable to open water swimming. 
like you got a sight, you got to swim with your head up. But are you really ever swimming? Are you guys, are you guys like, if, if it's a choppy, is, are you actually swimming like that? Like you're taking strokes, multiple strokes no. with your head up out of the water? You got to be able to do at least four to like see where a pack is or see where the buoy is. I definitely never do that, but I think it's valuable to like be able to maintain momentum with your head out of the water. Even if you're practicing it for the idea of doing one stroke or two strokes at a time, I think that's the idea behind it, and that's why I accept it. But right. it does not make my stroke feel good for a significant length of time after I've done it for like a fifty. Oh, oh, interesting. So it, it like it, it negatively impacts your swimming going forward after that temporarily. Yeah, which I you know like most things, I'm like, well, if I really suck at this, it's probably because I need to work on it. So right. I'll keep working on it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Okay, next most effective running drill. Do you guys even do running drills? I think I would say like hill strides are the closest thing to a drill that we do. Yeah. And they're actually super effective at activating your glutes, getting your form good. And anytime I do hill strides and then run after the hill strides, I feel a thousand times better. So yeah, I think that's that's a great answer. An effective drill. It's interesting because it goes a little bit opposite of what you would expect. Like they take so much energy out of you, you'd think the run would be hard after. But it's like, no, it muscularly just gets you primed and deformed, dialed. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and you're not supposed to do them so hard that you're so gassed after that you can't run. And they're full recovery between each one. Like walk down, yeah. feel good, start the next one. Paulo is very specific to say they're hill strides and not hill sprints, our coach Paulo. And I would also say that if you're doing swim drills, like properly, it's probably going to fatigue something in your core or just like weird little muscles as you're trying to like maintain good body position. So it's not like a drill is uh, a rest necessarily. Yeah. And then last one here, and I don't know if you guys even have an answer for this. And this one's hard to rapid fire, but a fun skill that you could just magically have, like learn like a wheelie, like or a backflip or something like that. Uh, descending without fear. That's a great answer. I would be I would be pretty stoked to be able to either do a backflip or a 360 on my mountain bike. It seems more complicated. Like a backflip, you just like lean back and like look sight the landing, and you f it up a couple times. But ultimately, <laughs> a couple times. Hopefully, you get a couple times. At least when I was right. when so I was wakeboarding, dead. I almost landed my first backflip. First try wakeboarding, like I landed on the board and then like one second later kind of got squirrely and lost it, but I never got even remotely close to landing a 360 uh, despite trying it over and over and over again. The 360, it's like, it's hard to slow down or speed up. And with a backflip, it's much easier. You can tuck or lay out and then like slow down your rotation. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's our uh, rapid fire. Hopefully that was fun. We'd like to do those every once in a while. We're now going to move on to questions here, and the questions are submitted, as always, by you, our amazing listeners. You can submit your questions at thattriathlonlife.com slash podcast, where you can also become a podcast supporter. And as a thank you to our supporters, we do a couple things. Uh, one of them is that we pick a supporter every week. We send them a bottle, a TTL branded bottle. And this week, we put in our random number generator, and we got Bree Sherry. Bree Sherry, you won TTL bottle. So make sure you just send me a message on Instagram or through the website and we will get you your bottle. Actually, Bree, you, you may not be getting a TTL bottle. You may be getting an Eric Lagerstrom edition or a Paula Finley edition water bottle. It 
It really depends. We have got new, super cool TTL water bottles on the way, and it just depends if they show up before we mail it and and all the things. I didn't know about that. I thought we were. I thought we. If she was. Uh, Brie was for sure getting a Eric or Paula bottle. I didn't realize there was a non Eric or Paula branded it, bottle. It just kind of depends because we don't have Eric or Paula branded bottles with us. And by the time we get back to Bend, where we have those, we may have some extremely cool TTL bottles waiting whoa, for us. So whoa, whoa! Just you're just gonna have to wait to find out what shows up in the mail. Yeah, very nice. Okay, on to questions. First one here is from Greg in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Hashtag Go Heels. I, uh, I know nothing about sports. I'm guessing that's the local is that sports team. Tar Heels? <laughs> I know nothing about I don't sports. Know. <laughs> Tar Heels sounds familiar. <laughs> I just know a lot about one sport, but and Eric all the other didn't sports. Even know. Eric oh, didn't even boy. know that Taylor Swift had a boyfriend that was an NFL player. And for everyone who doesn't know, Eric texts me during the Super Bowl and says, did you know that Taylor Swift has a boyfriend playing in this game right now? <laughs> I'm like, Eric, please tell me you're kidding. How did you avoid this information? And he's like, I wasn't avoiding it. I just never heard it. I'm like, damn, Eric, you do a good job at staying off of certain parts of social media to have not have that information. I'm seeing a different version of the internet than you are. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so anyway... Uh, Back to the question here, Greg's question. Hi team, as an age grouper, I experienced an emotional and mental letdown after my first full Ironman last year in Chattanooga. I did not experience that after half Ironmans I have done. I finished fine, 12 and a half hours. Sure, I could have been faster, but was not so bummed about results. And I absolutely loved training and the race and everything about it. Felt like I took everything in stride along the way, not making too much of a fuss about it or thinking I was over-invested in the outcome. So I figured I would finish, do some plus delta reflection to look towards the next one. I was a bit surprised about this letdown, and I wonder if you know this type of letdown is not unusual for age groupers. If so, any tips how to minimize and or manage it? Many thanks, Greg. So do you guys have this, like, you know, like the post-race blues, like it's, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily have to relate to how well you did, the potential that you lived up to. Is it just normal? Does it just always happen? Do you do you find that certain things lead to it be worse and certain things lead to it be less bad? I don't really know what makes it worse or better, but it's just, it happens all the time. Whether it's a good race or a bad race, if you have a good race, it kind of takes a couple days after you've made your Instagram post and sponsors have congratulated you and whatever, et cetera, et cetera. It's like kind of drags out a little bit these days thanks to social media, but then you just go back to life. It's like this thing that you've been all excited about and working towards and getting excited and et cetera, et cetera, for six months or two months or however long it's been is now gone. And you like, now what? Like what else in your life is, is exciting enough and interesting enough to, you know, wrap your head around and get excited about in the same way. And that's when you sign up for your next race. That's how they get you. Paula, do you, do you have this as well? The post-race letdown? Yeah, and and I feel like it's important to know if it's tied to like a positive or negative result or anything else that you can tie it to. Yeah, it's it's different as pros, I think, because we always have a race that's really, really close when we're done the first race. You know, it's like there's never this big lull where there's no races to be had and there's nothing in the future. And I find that an easier way to get over a bad race if you're like, well, I'm racing again in two months or a month. I know what I need to work on now. If you can just like be level-headed enough to have that um, that type of like insight on yourself after the race to think about that. But it is, I had this big time after the Olympics um, when you're just like working your whole 
for years up to a race and then it's over and then you go back home. And that is when post-Olympic depression sets in, which is really real. And the closest thing I can think of to this person's experience um, where there isn't really something coming up that's even remotely as exciting. You maybe don't want to train anymore because you're tired. And um, yeah, it's just like finding another thing, I think, is the most important advice. Like maybe you spend more time with family or take that six hours you were doing your long ride and go to the market downtown. I don't know. There's like Rebuild so many the deck, things. Like paint the house. Just, There's so you know, many things I wish I could hobby. do that weren't training sometimes. So I think as, as much as Greg thinks that he wasn't building it up in his head, he was like taking it in stride and the training was fun, which are all good things and I think will help reduce it. I If Greg is anything like me, you're, a lot of times your introduction to triathlon and part of what birthed your passion for it was this crazy idea of completing an Ironman. And as much as you can tell yourself it's not a big deal, for most age groupers, completing that first one, which is which I haven't even done yet, I think it, it does hold this very heavy emotional weight uh, on you. And when you finally do achieve it, it's... You can't help. I, I think the Olympics example was a great example. Yeah, I, I think anything that you care about a lot is, is going to have this. Yeah, and anything that takes a lot of time going into it. It takes time, it takes money, it takes sacrifices and all these things. Yeah. And then when it's done, it almost feels like there should be this big like celebration or whatever, but you go back home and you're back to work on Monday. It's like the anticlimactic nature of finishing an important thing is insane. Yeah. You're going to have this conversation with Bob at the water cooler and be like, yeah, I did an Ironman. He's like, oh, sweet, cool. I rebuilt the deck. Yeah, right. We're back to work. Equal things. (laughs) I mean, signing up for another race is not a bad idea, even if it's a half. Yeah, just continue the addiction. No, I mean, just like, don't don't cease to train at all because that helps feel better, I think. Yeah, continue the addiction. keep, Keep the lifestyle going. I do think it's a little bit part of the of the sport. Like we we build these things up so big and that's how we can push ourselves to do it. That's where the adrenaline comes from. And yes, the downside is that there are lows that come after it. Maybe the more you do it like you guys, now you maybe don't feel that as much anymore because you have a bunch of races and you've done it before and your body, your brain is like used to this up and down. I, I get this after I make a video that I really like. It never goes away. <laughs> right. It happens in all sorts of things in life, anything that you care about. It's totally yeah. normal. Yeah. It's all good. Sorry, Greg. This is life. Next question from Megan. Hi, Nick, Flynn, Paul, and Eric. <laughs> Sorry, Eric. That's the order you really don't like. No, honestly, I've been I've been missing a little bit. People have like slowly stopped including Flynn in this, and it's not like Flynn has anything to do with the podcast, but right. I do like that he is well, included just, in our troop. Flynn and I were first, and you were last in this list here. That's why uh, I thought oh, you might. You know, it's whatever. I know. I know who keeps the ship afloat. Okay, next. Uh, I discovered your podcast after coming across the 100th episode on YouTube and have been steadily binge listening all the episodes during my long rides on the trainer. Currently training for 70.3 in May and was hoping to seek a bit of advice. I recently delved into triathlon last year and participated in my first 70.3 in October. About six weeks before the race, I joined a one-on-one coaching club. Now with approximately 13 weeks left until my second 70.3 race, my training has intensified, leading to some calf tightness. After consulting with two physical therapists, I was diagnosed with calf strains and micro tearing. 
Interestingly, both PTs chuckled when I mentioned sustaining this injury under the guidance of an expensive one-on-one triathlon coach. I brought this to my coach's attention, but instead of receiving an apology, I was turned around. Blame was placed on me with the assertion that my body couldn't handle the workouts. Cast strains are attributed to doing too much too soon and too fast. Am I at fault for getting injured and should I consider finding a new coach? Best of luck this season. Can't wait to watch all three of you crush it. Cheers, Megan. I feel like there's so much that went wrong here. I can, <laughs> what do you guys think about this situation? I put this I in. Where to start is, is is challenging to unpack this one. Well, I it's a long question, so but I put it in the podcast because um, I don't think that a coach should ever take... You should never have to blame your coach for getting injured. That's a very toxic thing. Like when I get injured, I'm not blaming Paulo ever. I think it's like a two-way communication thing where you're giving feedback along the way. This is too much for me. This is sore. The instant it gets sore, not when it is an injury. Yeah, it's more like, okay, what what led to this? It's it's not one person. It could be a lack, like Paula said, a lack of communication. I didn't say when my calf started hurting six weeks ago or I ran 10 minutes longer every single time this week than I was supposed to or the coach didn't listen. You know, it's like you just, okay, what, what, let's have an open conversation about what went wrong. It's not somebody's fault. Yeah, I don't think, I think that like expecting an apology from the coach is maybe not the right way to approach it, but expecting to open up conversation about what maybe went wrong, what was too much, how can we adapt this, how can we work through this injury and what's the plan going forward. But fully dumping the coach and going to a new coach is not necessarily the fix. Yeah, I think I think this physical therapist like chuckling about under the guidance of a coach, he's just like making some sort of assumption that this coach is a hack and doesn't know what they're talking about and has put this thought into your head. This is a toxic thought rather than just assuming things are going something just like you're just assuming that the coach told you to do the wrong things and you're a robot and you just did every single thing that your coach told you to. There's like so many assumptions going on there. There's and there's so many things that are wrong here. The, the 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 PTs chuckling at you having a coach, that's wrong. That's weird. You blaming your coach, that seems weird. Your coach then being defensive and blaming you, that's all it's all weird. It's all strange. The PT should be understanding of your position. You're an athlete you want to train. You got injured. It's part of the sport, sadly. Like we're pushing our bodies. Injuries happen. It's not your coach's fault. It's not your fault. It, it happens. You it's all so strange, no? You know, you know what? I I think I, I don't want to throw anybody under the, under the bus here, but my gut reaction with this is that these are a bunch of people that got into these fields to make money. You're co- like, there's a coach that got in to make money. There's PTs who got in to make money. These are not people who got in to like make athletes' lives as good as they possibly can be. And this is the thing that I love so much about our coach is like I know to his core that he is trying to make us better athletes. Full stop. That's priority. Ego is not a thing. And I, I feel like this is a little bit of an of a endemic pandemic, like whatever it is inside of triathlon coaching. And apparently there's a bit of it in physical therapy of like, you got into this thinking this would be a great career rather than getting in it to like positively impact people's lives. And if everybody just wanted to make wow, you- Wow, you guys are taking this way deeper than I read if, it. If everybody just wanted to make you the best you possible, this would be a non-issue. And there would just be a collaborative conversation about how to make you better. Although I guess but the one thing I agree with Megan on is if you, I, I mean, I don't know how you approached your coach, but if your coach blamed you for the injury and said that you can't handle the training, then maybe that is not the right coach for I'm you. I'm out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Maybe you should find a new coach. Um, but 
Yeah, I guess this, like every injury is kind of a lesson for yourself more than anything about what was too much? What was the straw that broke the camel's back? Your coach has a billion athletes probably. He doesn't, he should care about you, but he doesn't care about you as much as you care about you. I don't know. This is a one-on-one coaching company, (laughs) whatever that means. So I, I would say maybe this isn't the best coaching setup for you. Um, but now you know of like what your weak point is. It's your your calf, what's too much training, maybe dial it back a little bit. There are definitely a lot of coaches out there who are really good and who will build athletes up properly who are beginners. Yeah, I do think this is a good lesson and you know your body the best and you know what's going on. Your coach can't get into your the head. Other, the other thing that's tough about having a new coach is like sometimes the engine is bigger than the body. Of of course. So if you're putting out like really good watts and running really well or good times in the pool, he's assuming that you're like fully capable, but the bones and the structure of the body are not like caught up to the engine yet. So mm-hmm. that could be a problem if you come from like a rowing background or a swimming background and you're just starting to run. There's all these little factors that a new coach, it takes months and months to learn who you are as a as an athlete and uh totally maybe just skip some steps along the way in this particular case nobody's fault though uh next question here hi from edmonton all four of you in no particular order wondering how eric is feeling about escape from alcatraz becoming a t100 race i know he has a lot of success there and has really enjoyed the challenge it has presented except maybe when the fog was super dense or when the rain was going sideways actually eric i think you loved those days uh those are my best times <laughs> yeah does this mean he isn't eligible to race it as he's not in the top 20 of PTO rankings? How do you all feel about some of these smaller races that were considered fun, part of an otherwise stressful year, potentially be taken over by the large corporations? Wishing you all good health as you start ramping up races again, Heather from Edmonton. Great question, Heather. Yeah, I put this in there because there was approximately like 10 questions about Alcatraz. For some reason, this was like a tribal, it looked like we initiated it. All the people saying Eric should get wild cards on Instagram and on oh, emailing <laughs> TTL. Like, Eric needs a wild card. If he doesn't get a wild card, I'm boycotting. Like, <laughs> I don't know if Eric wants any part of PTO T100 situation, even though he is in love with Alcatraz. And it, it is kind of sad news for him because it's his race and he does it every single year. He's won it twice. And... Heather, you're correct in saying that now that it's a T100 race, they won't have like a another pro race alongside it that's more of the classical style because the PTO race will have a different course. It'll be looped. It'll be the T100 distance. I believe it'll still go off the boat, but it's, it's a different format. So I don't know if Eric's interested, but uh, I do believe he'd be a good candidate for a wild card. That's for sure. I did look it up and there's no like no information on it on the PTO website. So we can't really see. Yeah, the the problem with the wild the cards is. is that because the PTO T one hundred series is now linked to World Triathlon, they're taking control a little bit of the entries and how that all works. So it's not clear, but Eric can definitely submit his intent or his desire for wild cards and just put his name in the in the hat kinda. Um, if he wants. But Eric, you can talk. It's about you. It's hard for me because I have uh, a lot of history with the race. It's the race that kind of launched my professional career as far as me being having uh, been heard of by anyone at all, even though I had a ITU career going before that. And 
what Paula said about the race course is kind of like the the crux of the question for me where I feel like that course suits me really well, the way that it is laid out classically and the way it's been done for 25, 30 years, whatever. Um, and the way that they're going to have to change it to make it loop friendly and everything, I think is will take away a lot of the things that I love about it and the history of it. And I don't know. I, I think it'll still be cool and it'll still have like a lot of the Alcatraz elements, but it's not the same thing. And I don't know. I haven't decided yet. I have to, I just kind of have to do a little soul searching on that, whether or not that like going and doing this triathlon at th- that venue in San Francisco is something that I'm still interested in, or if I just kind of should close that chapter in my career and, and watch the other athletes compete at the San Francisco T100 race. Well, I do, I think it would be an advantage for you having done it so many times. You, Ben Canute, people that are familiar with the boat jumping, I think that's going to like blow the field apart because it's so different than any other race. And the swim and the currents of the swim. Exactly. Yeah, the swim, the will, swim is insane. The swim will be different, but still, it's like you can you can follow the leaders there. That's true. And, yeah. you know, like the pack could split and go two completely different directions and then it's the same as normal where you're just... Do I want to hedge my bets and go right and straight for the beach or ride the current? A couple times I've done it. I just remember like jumping in, the world goes black, and then you're just like with a person or two, and that's your pack, and you're swimming with them to shore because you're scared. <laughs> Eric's yeah. at the front of those usually. I don't packs remember usually. any kind of like, I don't remember any kind of, oh, should I go left or right? It was just like, no, we are sticking together and we're getting to shore. And F this race. <laughs> <laughs> That's my experience. I think my final my final thing is I'm just gonna have to wait and see when they uh, uh, share the course maps, right. Right. and that'll that'll make my decision for me. Because the original course is so cool and a big part of the DNA of the race, and part of correct me if I'm wrong. That's like the swim is really is great, but the bike course and the run course are what excites you about that race. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like if if you were went to Oceanside and instead of riding through Camp Pendleton, they were like, okay, we're just gonna put you on the freeway for 45 miles out and back, um, just like Ironman Texas. I still think it'll be it'll have some cool hilly elements to it. Yeah, it will have some. And like I said, I'm just gonna have to wait and see and make that decision you know, based on that. Will they be um, able to go all the way to the sand ladder? Mm, I don't know. I doubt it. Highly yeah, doubt I don't it. think it goes to the sand ladder because it's, it's pretty Will they condensed. be able to do the, the cool zigzaggy, like run up the little stairs up to the Golden Gate Bridge? And Can I just say path? one thing? Just because the T100 took over the pro race, I, the age group race stays the same. Yeah. So for anyone who's listening, who's like freaking out about it changing, it's not changing for the amateur race, which I think is the following... Or wow. maybe a different time of day. I don't know, but um, don't worry about that for everyone else. Yeah, you'll still anybody who wants to do it will still get the cool classic experience, just not the pros. Okay, next question here from Amara. Hi, Paula, Nick, Eric, and Flynn. There we go. Uh, appreciate all the time and effort you guys put into weekly videos and podcasts. They're the highlight of my week. I wanted to ask about storage for the bottles and tire equipment. I've been looking into getting a custom storage box for a spare tire, air canister, etc. Would you recommend getting one that goes behind my seat or down by the gears? Both of those spots are where I store my bottles, so I'm having a hard time picking. Where do you guys store bottles and supplies 
Thank you for all your triathlon knowledge, Amara. Let's start out with this. What do you guys bring with you on a ride? Eric. I just bring Eric. <laughs> just bring Eric. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the ultimate. I bring Eric and my iPhone. That's my toolkit. Yeah, the, the difference between uh, how full my pockets are and how full Paula's pockets are on a ride is insane. Um, if you have if you have tubeless though, your your needs are much lower. Yeah. In terms of what to take on the road, it's like a CO two canister with a head on it and a dart kit to plug any big holes. Right. That's all it is. Yeah, I don't even bring CO two on training rides anymore. I just bring a hand pump because it'll get you home. I, I don't really care about like a, the super fastest change. Sometimes if I'm do, headed out to do a really big TT workout that's like the final workout of the block, then I'll bring a CO2 so I can do a really fast change. But just something to pump up your tire with and then the darts. But why do you bring a hand pump if it's bigger and more unruly than a CO2? Because it never fails. You can use it Time after time after time, a CO two. If you like use it and you kind of mess it up and the tire doesn't reseat and etc. That's Your one it. One chance, yeah. Got For it. For a race, it's fine though. But uh, the so this Eric, remember that I think like Rad Sport or something made us those boxes for our TT bikes that go in the frame. Oh yeah. So those are like little carriers. They're not easily accessible while you're riding, so they're not great for like snacks, but. For a toolkit, they're actually really cool. And yeah. they sit right below where your bottle goes in your frame. They look pretty good. They and have them the, custom for like multiple different TT bikes. Yeah, right? we had them made for the shiv, but they can make them for any bike. And the, the problem with the behind the saddle is that then takes a place where a bottle could potentially go. Um, whereas the one on your frame really isn't getting in the way of anything else. So I might go that route. And the, the behind the saddle bottle is a really good place to store a second or third bottle, especially while you're racing because there's no aerodynamic penalty. But yeah, are we talking about racing or training? Yeah, that's a good question. Are we talking about racing Because in training, training, I just carry <clears throat> carry that stuff in my jersey pockets. Yeah. I don't really like saddlebags. They tend to make a little bit of noise and Hit you your don't have to carry a tube anymore with tubeless. Yeah. But if this person is has a um, not tubeless bike, so they need a tube as well, it's a lot of stuff to put in your pocket. I would just go with a frame route if they're doing a custom thing anyway. Yeah. I I used to use one that was like, it was design, a bottle designed specifically for this where you could put your tubes and stuff in a bottle and then in a bottle cage. Obviously, then you're cannibalizing where you could actually put a bottle. But yeah. it might be an easy solution on a day where you're not going to drink too much on a training ride. Yeah. <laughs> Which is never... Yeah, we always right? fuel train like right. We right. always bring two yeah, bottles of course. for each hour. We never bonk. Never, <laughs> never, ever. We I always buy burritos like, when given the opportunity at rest, <laughs> at rest stops. Unless it's a one-hour ride, you should have two bottles. Okay. Yeah. So no, that's a bad plan to use yeah. the bottle cage as never a mind. toolkit spot. Next that. Don't do it. They always they look so great, and you always want to buy one at a bike shop. But then when you really start thinking about it, where are you going to put that? Like I need, I need, yeah. I need that space. That's, you need that water. <laughs> and unless they like you're going rattle. With like a, so unless you're riding with a camelback, I guess would be the exception. Uh, one other thing is you don't want to have a round down tube situation for races. That's so slow. Yeah. No. Well, Amara, I guess that custom like little is it? it or what are you talking about? Is that built like right above the bottom bracket and the bottom of the triangle there? Yeah. 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 That's cool. Yeah, a few bike companies made that as part of their bikes too. 
Yeah, some some frames it's just built in. Maybe this yeah. is it the Cervello? The Argon has a little space down there, I remember. Um, I think the Cervello might have a little space, a little junk trunk down there. Specialized even incorporated into their into the Roubaix at one point, and maybe even some other models. Yeah, they've got it on their road bikes. They've got it in there's a down tube situation on the Diverge, which is sick. I was going to go, I went online to buy one of these things and then I contacted the guy and he just sent them to us. It's called Radsport Ebert, I-B-E-R-T. And they've got like the Argon, the Shiv, the Trek, the everything on here where um, it's built specifically for the bike and you can still fit a bottle, like an oh, Argon nice. bottle. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. So That's nice. Cool. Check that out. Not a sponsor, but just a... Cool thing. Cool thing, Yeah. yeah. Next question here is from Adam. Hi, Paula, Nick, Eric, and Flynn. I'm super excited about the upcoming T100 series and watching Paula compete in it. I must say I'm a little confused about some of the controversy surrounding it, however. I've heard on some other podcasts some lower-ranked athletes complaining how the series isn't as open as they'd like, and they feel excluded from it. I was under the impression that this series was created as an elite-style competition series, sort of like F1, and intentionally is only featuring top athletes. Am I missing something here? Are these lower-ranked athletes justified in feeling left out, or are there plans in the future to include a deeper field with more opportunities here? Also, I feel that with this series taking focus, it will open up more opportunities in the Ironman and 70.3 races that other athletes can step in. With Paula being on the athlete board, I figured you'd have more of an insight into the future of the PTO. Thanks. Excited for the upcoming season, Adam. Yeah, I think he answered a lot of the questions in the question. Like some of the lower ranked athletes can go race 70.3 Oregon or 70.3, something that's not in the Ironman Pro Series or the T100 Series, and there'll be less athletes at those. Therefore, more opportunity to podium or win them and make prize money that way. Eric, how do you feel as someone who is not part of that top 20 that this is exclusively for those people who are ranked in the PTO top 20? Because you're, you're, kind of you're kind of the person that Adam's talking about here a little bit. I'm not in it, I, I, but I know that if I had done over the last four years, made every single move to make my training the number one focus of my life and, and I was good enough, I would be in that series right now. But I have wanted to do some Xterra. I've wanted to build our little company. I've supported Paula. Like, like we've done a lot of things and I've had a really great life. And the people who are in the top 16 and racing at that level eat, sleep, triathlon, that is it. They have teams around them. They are like training in a training group every day. They're like going to altitude camp, like every last single thing. And I think if you want to race at that level, that's what you need to do now. It's super high. And it's just like, it's exactly like Formula One. I think that's a great example. Getting into Formula One, getting one of those driver's seats, we've all watched drivers to survive now, is incredibly difficult. But once you're in there, it's a little bit easier to stay in there than it is to get into it. But it's not like... Impossible. It's, it's not impossible. And if you go and you race 70.3, we're just going to keep using 70.3 Oregon for the rest of this podcast as an example. If you go there and you go freaking an insane time and you like bike 158 and you run a 106, PTO is going to notice and they're going to give you a wild card and you're going to get the opportunity to race at that level. But if you go to 70.3 Oregon and you bike a 215 and you run a 118 and then you expect that you should be able to go line up at a T100 race, no. Like you can go race the best athletes in the world at Oceanside, though. 
Like that's going to have 130 pro men on the Star Wars <laughs> and they're all going right. to be smacking the shit out of Magnus Ditlev and Joe Skipper, the guys who actually have a chance to win the race. And, and they have an equal opportunity to win that, theoretically. But that's not what the PTO race is about. It's about prioritizing those tippy-top athletes, making sure that they have a clean race, best possible experience, and it's easy to watch for consumers and get on TV, all those things. But you can aspire to be there. It's totally open. You just got to perform and be at that level. That's my. That's how I feel about it. It's fun for us to watch and have the same characters show up at each race and know the stories. It, it, from a viewing perspective, it does seem more exciting that way. I think the PTO does have ambitions of having a T two hundred. Yeah, like a like a B league kind of race series that feeds into the T one hundred series. Um, they took on this enormous task of setting up this series financially, logistically, all these things. So it's too much to ask to do both of those things in year one. But I think it's like maybe a year three, a year four, plan down the pipeline. It's definitely been talked about on board calls. And um, in the meantime, I think there's still so many opportunities for racing this year, no matter what level you're at. I don't know. I just like, to me, I feel like, we're trying to save triathlon here, or like we're trying to make pro triathlon something that gets on TV and is on ESPN, etc. This is the only way. This is the only way. Like it was really awesome that the PTO paid every single pro triathlete during COVID a little bit of money to get them through and everything. But did that get us any closer to triathlon being on the same level as golf and tennis and F1? No. It was it was great for a bunch of people who were in there, but like if we really want this to get to the next level and have this be like a sport that is around forever. I I do feel like this is the way. I love it. Agree. I love it. Okay. Next question here is from Trevor from Minneapolis. Hey y'all, long time viewer, first time caller. My question is about coffee. What's the hype with espresso? My wife and I are huge pour over folks with high quality beans, mostly Chemex, V60, and Kalita Wave. I've noticed a few high level athletes like yourselves and folks in the CrossFit realm are big into the espresso. Is there a specific reason? Lower acidity when mixing milk, more calories for training, or is it just a preference? Thanks for all your content and being rad humans, Trevor. I think if you want to have cappuccinos, you need That's an espresso the machine. It's like milk drinks need espresso. Well, people do drip coffee with milk all the time, don't they? Yeah, but it's not like a How cappuccino <laughs> frost poured thing. It's like, yeah, you can put milk in your drink. Yeah, the, the, yes, you can have a, a a milk a drink that has coffee and warm milk in it, but that is not the same as a properly textured or frothed um, cappuccino or latte. It's just it's just a different experience. But I think that good pour over with nice beans is just as artisan as an espresso. Would you say? Yes, for sure. Like if maybe were, even more. If you were to make an americano, which is just espresso watered down with hot water and put that next to a pour, like a good pour over or a Chemex. Yeah. I think you, you probably are going to prefer the pour over. Yeah. It's less acidic, right? Yeah. It's, it's super tasty, but you like, if you're just having like an espresso shot by itself, it's got this crema, it's got this whole texture and mouthfeel that's unique. And some people like that. Some people don't like that. And then you add milk to it that is properly textured. I'm just going to use that word again. It's that that's a specific type of drink. It's like saying, is a mimosa better than a mo, than a mojito? I see. So it's not unequivocally <laughs> better. Just, they are just different. Yeah, they're just different. Yeah. And the espresso machine, you got the frother in it. The milk frother like it comes with the machine. You know? Right. <laughs> comes with it. I'm just surprised because anywhere you go, 
where they serve coffee, if they serve espresso, it costs more than a drip coffee. And then the machines, like you buy a drip coffee machine, it's like super cheap. An espresso machine is not. So I kind of thought we're it was not the talking elevated about, version we're not of talking coffee. About we're not talking coffee. about drip. We're talking about like pour over Chemex, like the slow. Yeah. If you go get a pour over that just says on the menu, market price. Which means oh, if you I want see. that, you just better be ready to pay whatever beans that they're using. I and see. Somebody is there tending to it for like four minutes of dribbling uh, water over this in just the right way, at yeah, just it takes the right 10 time, times at just the right temperature. I it's see. It's a whole thing. Now, that's, that's part of why I prefer the espresso machine. Like, I like the process of espresso, but I don't like the process of the pour over quite enough to sit there and like fully tend to the coffee times two, you know. All Takes a while, yeah. I like the espresso process a lot. I, I thought pour over was just a fancy word for drip coffee. It's like the same process, but someone's there pouring it, you know? Ult- well, I mean, you're not wrong. Ultimately, that is a correct statement where a pour over is a person doing this manually, very uh-huh. specifically versus a, a, a drip coffee is just a Got machine it. blasting hot water, you know, right. dripping hot water onto a coffee. <laughs> blasting. <Okay. laughs> it's, it's not blasting, but it's... It's it's you taking control. Yeah, cool. And doing it very specifically. Cool, thanks for that. Okay, next question here is from Math, but this is going to be a, a supporter-only question. Supporter is this Math Cart? I don't know, but I do know who Math Cart is. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it just, just says math. Mind. It just says math. What are the chances? Yes, that's right. Um, so th- this is the question. Hey, TTL fam, super fan of your podcast here. Quick question I had is I was doing some mobility work this morning. As you're away from home for a few weeks slash month, what mobility, massage, recovery tools do you leave with? Foam rollers, mobile board, recovery boots and sleeves, etc. Sending loads of good vibes your way. Math. So if you're a Podcast supporter, you're going to get the rest of this question in an email. Uh, if not, you might just have to become a podcast supporter to hear it. Ooh. Back to the regular podcast here. This next one is from Wyatt. Hello, TTL gang. I just signed up for my first triathlon last weekend, Chattanooga. Ooh, a lot of Chattanooga talk on this pod. I finally had a breakthrough in the pool where everything began to click. My question is for you all. At the level you all compete at, do you still find yourself having breakthroughs in training? Wyatt. No, never. No. I put this in there because I read it and I laughed. Like, I don't think I've ever in my life experienced like a breakthrough feeling. Where I'm like, aha, now I'm good at this. I just, like- I just keep getting worse at things. <laughs> That's brutal. I'm trying to like minimize the downfall of my 20 year old self. Right? Yeah, I would say That's it- all I'm doing. Like a breakthrough these days, class it constitutes being almost as good as the best time that I've done that workout. (laughs) Like wow, I was really close to the best time that I can remember doing before this tempo run (laughs) ten years ago. It was very sad. When's the last time you were like? Do you remember when you were younger having breakthroughs like that? Or even then, was it kind of like pretty stepwise linear progression, like predictable? I want to say it's pretty predictable, but I can remember a couple times, um, like a couple situations, like when I really had a great, like three months of running that led to a big 10K PR. Yeah, I remember specific, specifically like swim meets where you'd take off a chunk of time and the 200 breaststroke or something, but that kind of has a lot to do with just 
getting older and stronger and bigger as you're getting older as a teenager more than anything. Yeah, we're at this point, we're not like realizing little technique things that just took off this big chunk of time. And like our engines are so refined and, and worked on. It's, it's But I do think this is what's cool about uh, an amateur getting into the sport at later in life is that these moments could happen more often yeah. than they yeah. would for a professional athlete. They're, they're, they happen to me. They're currently, like I, I have those moments, not frequently, but they do happen. That is, a, that is one of the few upsides of, of approaching the sport later in life. Yeah, totally. Last question here is from Jennifer. Hey, everyone. I've been a fan from the beginning, watching every YouTube and listening to every podcast. Wow, that's a real day wonder. Thanks for all you do to show us a glimpse of life as a professional triathlete. Last week, I was listening to your podcast during a hard interval session. In my head, I was planning to finish one more interval if I could and skip the last two because I just couldn't. Ironically enough, this is when Paula started talking about the mental aspect of getting good on the bike and having to dig deep. It was perfect timing, and I was able to push myself through the rest of the intervals. It was hard as hell, but it really helped to build my confidence and reminded me of how deep I need to go if I want to get better and faster. It's less of a question, but I'd love to hear more of each of you as how you get through those mental walls and physical pain that your body endures during those hard intervals. When both your mind and your body is telling you enough, how do you push yourself to keep going? Thanks for your motivation last week and all the years prior. Can't wait to see how the rest of your journey unfolds, Jennifer. I can't help but go back to the very first thing we talked about, which is the fact that if it didn't, if you didn't incur any fatigue or injury, that you, both of you would just go try as hard as you could on a marathon. It's like your both of your minds, and and maybe it's not just both of you, it's just professionals, are just stronger. You know that you have to do it. The issue isn't fighting through the pain. The issue is like, is this smart? Is this going to affect my training tomorrow? My hip hurts. How's this going to affect that? Yeah, uh, you know, it's not completely fair for us to compare are pushing through a hard session to a, a typical age group athlete because our livelihood depends on this. We don't so much have to go to the bank of like, why am I doing this? What is the point? Does anyone care? It's just, this is my job. And if I want to continue paying the bills and keep living my life this way, this is what I have to do. So it's it's like whenever a, an option is presented to you, it makes it harder to to choose and, and like stay on the course, you know? If if you see one of your your co athletes quit the workout, all of a sudden that becomes an, a little bit of an option. Versus if nobody quits ever, it's you know that that's just an example. So we have the benefit of that a little bit. Um, but for me, what I do when I'm having a really hard moment like that, I kind of I try to think more like right here, right now. Like what am I trying to do right now? Nail this next stroke. Nail this flip turn. Nail like close my eyes and try to really focus on having a quick turnover while running or like getting my knees up, et cetera, like these little cues and like really try to be in that moment and, and search for something that I can work on right there. That is not just how, how bad does this feel? I don't have a very insightful answer, but when I really hate the swim set, that's hard, which is often, I always calculate how much time is left in the set. I'm like, oh, we only have 12 minutes and 40 seconds left of this set, and then it's done. And for some reason, I can wrap my head around 12 minutes of pain versus like, oh my gosh, we still have six thousand yards, you know, or whatever. Something, yeah, that's, yeah. something that sounds so much scarier. 
like, oh, I did 12 minutes hard on the bike yesterday. And it was like, no big deal. I can do 12 minutes of hard swimming. So I tricked myself that way. But it's, that's kind of dumb. It's, it's, it's so funny because that, like, this is the exact opposite of what I just said, basically. Is like I'm oh, trying yeah, you're to right. forget <laughs> about right. where I am and like how much I have left and all this stuff, and I'm just trying to like think about not that, and then inevitably like you're swimming with somebody who is like that, um, not Paula, somebody completely different, you know, um, and they're like only seven minutes to go, and, you're like, and I'm no, like, no, 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 don't say it, <laughs> no, I don't, no, stroke, breathe, stroke, breathe, like don't, yeah, right, <laughs> but like for that person that. That helps, you know, breaking that down. Yeah, or I'll break it down in kilometers. Like, oh, I have 2K left of this tempo. That's nothing, that, that kind of thing. Do you guys mm, ever have yeah. a, a thing where you, you, you're you approaching a session, a, a difficult workout, and maybe you do the first interval and you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to be able to finish this workout? Like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this properly. And then you get to the end and you think, whoa, I got through it and I'm, I'm okay. Like, I'm not totally wrecked. I'm, I'm okay. Literally every day that happens to me lately. Oh man, that's <laughs> a that's rough. It's really rough. It's that's really rough. rough. I'm having a hard time. That's when you when you have that every day for an extended period of time. That's when it might be time for a race week or a race is coming up. And you're did I say race? I mean rest week. And, and <laughs> oh boy, the taper, Freudian slip. You know the opposite of a race week. <laughs> yeah. Um, like today, I left no, on a tempo a run. Eric wasn't home, and I was like. I don't know how I'm going to get home from this because I'm. There's no way I'm doing this tempo run, and I'm 5k from home. Then you just start it, and you do 1k, then you do 2k, and you're like, okay, I might as well do the whole thing. And I'm feeling a little better now. Just start. <laughs> yeah, just, just start. Just freaking, just start your watch and start moving, and you'll be done eventually. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's, it's true, and so, you know we all know that in our heads, but man, it's still so hard to push through that. And then I go through this awful cycle of like. Oh, if I had only started when I told myself I would start, I'd be done. done. (laughs) (laughs) Like, and then I start thinking, does anyone else like this? Like, does anybody truly freaking enjoy this? It's just, it's an awful cycle. Try to get yourself to start the workout before all these negative thoughts come into your head. Yeah. Got to autopilot all all the things. Just wake up and you just make the coffee and you just eat the cereal and you just like look at one email and then you put on your shoes and you just try not to think about what you're going to be doing at 6 p.m. or what's for dinner or any of the things in between. Just focus on the thing that you have to do in the next 10 seconds. But to, 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 to agree with what you're saying here, Eric, I think it's not even just like before and after the workout. It's like you said, it's within the workout. Don't even think that you have five more intervals to go. Just focus on that one interval. That helps me. Yeah, nailed that interval. That's all you can do right now. I can't help but think about the next five. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course. <laughs> of course. Because <laughs> I'm like, what does it matter if I nail this one thing? Is it going to make me a better triathlete to nail this number six out of 17? Yeah, you're right. This is like, this is the paradox. Is is like simultaneously feeling like everything matters, but also no, nothing really matters so much that you like live or die by it. Mm. That is like the, the paradox of of getting the most out of yourself over a long period of time. That's a good point. It's, it's the same thing that that prevents people from eating healthier, like me, for example. I'm like, well, it's not this meal that matters. It's all of them right. together. <laughs> you know, it's not this donut that matters. Yeah, I'll stop having donuts. To- 
next hour of my life. (laughs) But this donut looks so warm and fresh, so I'm going to have this one. (laughs) It's true, and it carries over to many aspects of life. Yes, many aspects of life. I don't need good sleep tonight. I'll get good sleep tomorrow night. I don't need to pay this bill today. I'll pay it tomorrow. Yeah, but Uh, then also obsessing about tonight's sleep is not great. You're right. There's a zen medium somewhere there. Dude, how about those squirrels in Santa Monica? You mean the rats? Squirrel rats. I <laughs> showed Paula the video and she was laughing hysterically. Like if Flynn was there, it would these these squirrels would be toast. They're yeah, laying around like they've never seen a predator in their lives. Their parents and the parents before them have never seen a predator. Well, just to give you an idea also, when it was COVID and that whole, there's, so Eric is, is referencing, a, there's an area called Palisades Park in Santa Monica. It's a beautiful green strip of park. It's very thin and very long and it parallels the water. And there's just a ton of squirrels that run around there. And during COVID- They don't even air, run though. They just, they just sunbathe. They're like they laying sunbathe. while <laughs> They're eating. They're like They're doing slugs. down dog uh, in the middle yeah. of the, in the, in the day. But during COVID, that whole area was fenced off because they didn't want people kind of congregating there. And the squirrels were just literally sitting in the middle of the field. Like they had no predators at all. No one was bothering them. But there were just hundreds of squirrels sitting around this green oh patch gosh. area. It was epic. What about birds of what about birds of prey? Do you not have we do. death from above of any yeah, sort? We do death from above. <laughs> yeah, we have death from above. Usually the seagulls in, in uh, LA are so brutal that you can be eating a burrito and they will Fish it out of your hands. But a burrito and a squirrel are not the same thing. Anyway, um, if you're not, a, if you don't have a hockey team that you're aligned with, just cheer for the Oilers because because <laughs> they're the best. They're from Edmonton. No bias. Um, no bias at all. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, maybe next week we'll do a podcast in person. Yeah. Those turn out better, I think. Appreciate everyone's support. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks.